Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast bringing you true crime from around the world. Cambo, grab a beer, pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast and high islanders. Now, the case we have tonight was brought to my notice by one of our islanders, Dylan G. And although I'm sure I've heard it before, once I started looking into it in detail, I mean, it's, it's a really disturbing case. Now, I've done over 120 episodes, and this one ranks at or near the top as one of the craziest cases I've come across. Now, references tonight uh, from Dylan. (laughs) Good on you, Dylan. The Sacramento Bee, the LA Times, the Times Advocate, and the Chilliwack Progress. Chilliwack. What a place to live. Okay. Now, before we get into it, as some people turn off at the end of the show, don't listen to the rant at the end, I will be having a 1,000 subscriber t-shirt giveaway on my YouTube channel. That is 1,000 subscribers on my YouTube channel, not listening to me now. I think we've got a lot, lot more than that. So please go there and have a look and subscribe if you like to be in the running. And I also, this is separate to that, have a hot pink limited edition run of true crime island logo t-shirts that i'll be releasing with bonfire details this week on facebook twitter and instagram and if you don't have those just send me an email cambo at truecrimeisland.com so i can send you a link or go like i said go to my youtube channel where i will be sticking a photo of that show so you can see what the shirt looks like somewhere during the show Okay, so let's get stuck straight into this. We go to the US of A tonight, and the story starts in 1946, where Teresa Cross in Sacramento was born. Now, Teresa was the younger of two daughters born to Swanee Gay, pencil maker, and James Jim Cross, who was an assistant cheesemaker. Now, Jim was able to buy a home in Rio Linda, California, but a few years later, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and he had to quit his job. Now, Swanee and I think one of the older daughters tried to keep the family together financially while Jim took out his anxieties on his family. Now, Swanee died of congestive heart failure at the age of 53 in the arms of Teresa. Now, that was 1961. Now, Teresa was close to her mother and the death devastated her. And she was almost 15 at the time. So an awful thing to happen when you're just a teenager. The following year, Teresa, at just 16 years old, would meet and marry 21-year-old Clifford Clive Sanders and she dropped out of school. On July 16, 1963, she gave birth to her first child, Howard Clyde Sanders. Now, Teresa was quite jealous, possessive, and she was constantly accusing Cliff of cheating on her. And this, of course, would have caused lots of problems in the marriage. Now, in June 1964, Teresa reported to police that Cliff had punched her in the face, but she refused to press charges. Now, on July the 5th, 1964, 
Cliff spent his birthday out with friends rather than with Teresa and the family. Now, Teresa was not amused, as I can imagine, if anyone listening here did that with their other half. And the next day, they had this huge argument. Then Cliff, he just had enough, told her he was leaving. Now, as he was about to walk out the door, Teresa grabbed a rifle from the bedroom, shot him through his wrist, and the bullet went into his chest, killing him. Now, 11-month-old Howard, apparently he witnessed this killing. So, fuck's sake, what a thing to happen. And what a thing for a little kid, although only 11 months old, to witness. So, Teresa, at only 18 years of age, she was arrested and charged with murder. She pleaded not guilty by reason of self-defence. Now, Teresa told the court that Cliff was an alcoholic, he was an abusive husband, and on this day, he'd picked up the rifle and threatened her with it. Now, she says she's able to grab it, grab it, and in the scuffle that ensued, she pulled the trigger and it went off. Now, several of Cliff's rellos, they testified that he wasn't an alco and he wasn't abusive or violent. In fact, Teresa's own sister testified that Teresa was jealous and possessive and would kill Cliff before letting another woman have him. Now, the jury would find her not guilty, and they would actually hug her after the verdict was read out, like, oh, you poor beaten woman, you know, sort of thing. But Teresa went to the cop station the next day and asked for her rifle back out of evidence. Now, just a few months later, in 1965, she gave birth to her second kid, Sheila. So, when she killed Cliff, she was already knocked up. Now, soon, Teresa would meet a disabled veteran, Estelle Lee Thornsbury. Now, she met him while drinking at a local Legions bar. Now, I think Legions bars are similar to our RSL clubs, which I mentioned last week, the Return Services League. In fact, she had begun to drink quite heavily after Sheila's birth. They moved in together, but Teresa would often go out for days on end and Estelle broke off the relationship after he found out that his best mate was cutting his grass. It wouldn't be long before she was in her next relationship, this time with US Marine Private Robert Knorr. Now, Teresa soon got pregnant and the couple married in July 1966. In September, Teresa gave birth to her third kid, Susan. In 1967, Teresa gave birth to her fourth kid, William. In 1968, her fifth child, Robert Jr. And in 1970, her sixth and final child, Teresa, or Terry, as she was known. I mean, fuck's sake. They had so many kids, they ran out of names. Now, Teresa and Robert's marriage broke down before Terry was born, as Robert was constantly being accused of rooting around. He left and was granted a divorce in 1970, but Teresa wouldn't let him see the kids. Now, still, she met and married railroad worker Ronald Pulliam in 1971. But as before, Teresa would go out all night drinking with friends, leaving Ron to look after the kids, and they got divorced as he suspected Teresa of cheating on him. Still, Teresa was able to find Another husband, Chester Harris, a copy editor for the Sacramental Union. Sacramental. Oh, God. What a Freudian slip. Sacramento Union. 
They married in August 1976 and divorced in November of that year. Now, this is because Teresa got jealous that Chester and Susan, her daughter, had become close. And also because Teresa reckoned Chester often took consensual nude photos of other women. So maybe that was just his hobby that she just didn't like. Well, but you think that's weird. We have not got into the fucking crazy shit yet. So Teresa, at age 30, has six kids, three divorces, plus she killed one of her husbands. Now, Teresa, who drank a lot, was now the only one left to care for the kids. If you could say what she's going to do is would be caring at all. Whereas before she could dump the kids on her husband and go out, she became reclusive and started gaining weight. Now, she took out her anxieties on her kids, abusing them physically, psychologically, and would yell abuse at them. Howard, her eldest kid, would move out of home, leaving his five siblings to cop Teresa's abuse. Now, this home had become some sort of prison for the kids, and Teresa was the warden. She had so much control over them. Teresa had even disconnected the phone and forbid the kids, forbade the kids to go outside. The place stunk of urine and was filled with rubbish. At one stage, Teresa brought home a guy from the bar and he taught her how to throw knives. So Teresa, thinking she's pretty good at it, lined the kids up against the wall one by one while she practised throwing knives at them. Now, what, what the fuck anyway... She missed most of them, except the last one, where she hit her daughter in the arm. But instead of being worried about the injury to her daughter, she abused her daughter for moving and said she'd sabotaged her. Now, Teresa found a piece of plywood. This, this is a few, few days later or months later from a construction site. So she found this piece of plywood. She wrote on it, Board of Education, and she would beat the kids mercilessly with it. Jesus Christ. It actually reminds me of a story of our woodworking industrial arts area where I went to school, which I mentioned last week, Hurlston. And down there, one of the teachers who was sort of like, I won't mention any names, but he was pretty good at woodwork. And behind his desk, he had a rack he'd made in lovely types of timber, rosewood and all this shit. And he crafted several different canes and so you'd walk in and it didn't matter what you went in the seam for you'd see this rack there with all these different they had different handles thicknesses and all this sort of stuff it was quite intimidating now if you think that what he got away with back then if he tried to do it now they'd fucking lock him up anyway that's beside the point let's get back onto this case all right So she's pretty abusive with the kids, but the abuse would escalate even more. Teresa was convinced that her ex-husband Chester had turned Susan into a witch and Susan had cast spells on her to gain weight. Anyway, she beat Susan so badly that she actually ran away from home, but she was found on on the streets by police. Now, I'm not sure. Some people said she was selling her body. But anyway, she was picked up by police. Now, they took her to a psychiatric hospital where she told the staff of her abuse. Now, Teresa 
was able to convince the hospital that Susan was actually unstable mentally and the abuse claims were just made up. So get this, the hospital just took her word for it and released Susan into her mother's custody. Now fuck, how how Susan must have felt just thinking she's almost out. She, the life on the street would have been probably shit, but so much better than being at home. She gets picked up, put in a mental house, and then given back to her mother. Anyway, as punishment, Teresa handcuffed Susan to her bed and not only beat her, but ordered the other kids to beat her up as well. Now, at, at this stage, Teresa had taken all of her kids out of school and we still haven't got to the really disturbing stuff yet. So hang on, Islanders. In 1982, Teresa was convinced that her now 16-year-old daughter was casting spells on her to gain weight, as I mentioned before. Now, Teresa became so enraged that she shot Susan in the chest with a .22 caliber pistol. The bullet lodged in her back and she didn't die. Now, rather than take her to the hospital, which would mean police would get involved, she just put her in the bathtub. Now, Susan wouldn't die. So Teresa ended up nursing her back to health in the bathtub. She didn't take her out of the bathtub, left her in the bathtub. And she also let the other kids nurse her as well. Now, fuck, how, how horrific being shot in the chest by your mum and dumped in the bathtub, obviously unable to get out and just waiting to die. But she didn't die. She got better. Now, two years later, Teresa and Susan got into another fight. Now, Teresa stabbed her almost 18-year-old daughter in the back with a pair of scissors. I mean, fuck's sake. I don't think I'm going to swear as much in any other episode as this one. This is just crazy. Again, Susan wasn't allowed to go to the hospital. And again, she got better. Now, Susan told her mum that she wanted to leave home and go to Alaska. Now, Teresa actually agreed, which I suppose she did so, as she found she had less control over her as she was she was sort of getting older, and I guess she couldn't keep her locked in the house as easily as the younger kids. But she only agreed on the proviso that she'd be allowed to dig the bullet out that was still lodged in her back from before. Now, she did this so it could never be used as evidence against her. Now, I guess Susan reluctantly agreed, probably thinking that doing so would free her from her mother's tyranny and she could start a new life. So Teresa gave Susan pills and booze until she was unconscious. Now, she then ordered her 15-year-old son, Robert Jr., to dig the bullet out with an X-Acto knife. Now, that's one of those craft knives that look a little bit like a scalpel. Well, he he did a good job, I suppose. He got the bullet out. And as you can imagine, when Susan woke up, she was suffering incredible pain. Now, the wound would become infected and Susan developed sepsis and started to suffer, suffer, including fever, increased heart rate, increased breathing rate and confusion. So she was delirious. Teresa treated her with antibiotic and ibuprofen but her condition declined. Still, Teresa Teresa wouldn't take her daughter to hospital. Instead, she gathered gathered up all her belongings into a bag 
She bound Susan's arms and legs and duct taped her mouth. She then ordered her two sons, William and Robert Jr., who were 17 and 18 at the time, to put Susan into the car and they drove to Squaw Valley. Now here they put Susan on top of the bags of her stuff and poured petrol over her and lit her on fire. The smouldering remains would be found a couple of days later or the next day and an autopsy would find them that she was alive when she was set on fire, for fuck's sake. How horrific. Now when police found the body, they found a lot of personal effects and not only that, they found a nappy or a diaper. Now this led them to believe there may be a baby walking around somewhere, but a search of the area came up with nothing. Well, we now know that the diaper was worn by Susan while she was trying to recover from the botched removal of the bullet from her back by her brother. Now, as Susan was no had no social life at all or, all or friends, and Teresa obviously didn't report her missing, investigators couldn't identify her body and she would become known as Jane Doe number 4873-84. Now investigators were able to make a sketch of her face as only half of it had burnt. But even after they released it to the media, no one came forward. But that's not the end of the abuse Teresa would dish out to her kids. Now she directed most of her abuse to a 20-year-old daughter at the time, Sheila. She forced her into prostitution to provide for the family. Now, this was quite lucrative, and Teresa seems to seem to relax her grip on allowing her to leave the house. But this soon went sour. Now, Teresa accused Sheila of becoming pregnant and also accused her of giving her the clap via a dirty toilet seat. Now, Teresa was livid, and she beat her hog-tied her and locked her in a broom closet only two feet square in size. She wouldn't let the other kids give her food or water. Now, Teresa, as was her way, she would beat the kids until they confessed. Now, to try and end the torture, Sheila eventually confessed to being pregnant and giving her mother the clap, but Teresa told her that now she was just lying and she refused to let her out of the broom closet. Now, 15-year-old little Terry, she did slip her sister some beer, but ultimately Sheila died a few days later of dehydration and starvation. And beer, I don't think that's probably alcohol's best thing to give when you're dehydrating. Anyway, so now there was a dead body in the closet and it started to decompose and stink the place up. Again, it was up to William and Robert Jr. to clean up and dispose of a body. They put Sheila's body in a cardboard box, taped it up and drove it out to Truckee. Now that's about an hour and a half drive northeast of Sacramento. Here they dumped her body by the side of the road near Truckee Tahoe Airport. Now her body was discovered only a few hours after being dumped. But just like before, there was no identification on the body and Teresa wasn't about to report her daughter missing, so these remains became known as Jane Doe number 6607-85. Jesus. A year or so later, the smell of death hadn't left the house. Teresa decided to move all her shit out and ordered her youngest daughter, Terry, to go back at night and burn the place down. Now, Terry did as she was told and poured lighter fluid onto the floor and lit the place on fire. 
However, the neighbours called the fire brigade and they quickly doused the flames with very little damage to the house. Now, Teresa, she went into hiding and all the children split from her except Robert Jr., who was 19 years old at the time. Terry, who was only 16, took Sheila's ID and passed herself off as her 21-year-old sister. In 1989, Terry tried to report the murders of her two sisters to the police, a lawyer, and to her therapist. But they didn't believe her. She was undergoing therapy at the time, and as you can imagine, after growing up through all the shit in her family, even the therapist didn't believe her. Now, what the fucking fuck? Now, Teresa and Robert Jr. went to live in Las Vegas after trying to torch the house in 1986, But five years later in 1991, Robert Jr. would be arrested for murder after shooting dead a bartender in an armed robbery attempt. He would get 16 years for this, and then Teresa took off to Salt Lake City. Now, Teresa got a job taking care of her landlord's 86-year-old mother. Now, I think it was almost like a live-in position. She was probably doing it to pay for a rent and getting some cash. I'm not sure, but... Yeah, what an you, you should check references, people. Okay, just letting you know out there. Check references if you're going to let somebody do something like that. Okay, so in October 1993, Terry contacted the Placer County Sheriff's Department after watching America's Most Wanted and realizing murder charges could be still laid on her mother. She told the authorities of the gruesome deaths of her sisters. Now, finally, they took her more seriously and connected her story to the two Jane Does, 483-84 and 660-85. Her detailed descriptions of her sisters, down to the chipped teeth from forced feedings, they matched the body of the two Jane Does found in the Sierra Nevada in in the mid-80s. In fact, the description she gave in 1989, so this is the one she did four years earlier, that was detailed enough that even a basic computer check would have verified her story way back then. Pretty sad, isn't it? Anyway, in the next week or so, detectives were able to track down Teresa, William and Robert Jr. Now, as I said before, Teresa was living in Salt Lake City. Williams was found at his work at a warehouse in Woodland, California, and Robert Jr. was easy to find as he was still in prison from his murder conviction. Now, funny enough, Terry, she'd moved into the same neighbourhood as Teresa was living in Salt Lake City, and she was working as a checkout girl in a... Checkout woman, checkout person, sorry, in a grocery store. But they they never ran into each other. I guess, I don't know, Teresa just doesn't go shopping. Who knows? Anyway, now, Teresa's arrest prompted authorities to have another look at the death of her first husband in Cliff in 1964, for which she was acquitted. Also, they looked into the unsolved strangulation death of Teresa's 39-year-old sister, and that happened in 1983. Now, she would be cleared of the death of her sister. On November 15, 1993, Teresa was charged with two counts of murder, two counts of conspiracy to commit murder and two special circumstances charges, that's multiple murder and murder by torture. At her arraignment, Robert Sr., 
her ex-husband and biological father of Susan, William and Robert Jr., oh, and also Terry, shouted out abuse towards Teresa. Now he shouted, I hope you burn in hell for what you did to my kids, woman. So, the, and the awful thing is, she wouldn't let him have the kids. Now, rather than give the kids to him when they split up and she could go out partying, she just wanted to hurt her ex-husband and not give him the kids or give him any access to the kids. Laws were a little bit different back then. You couldn't just say, hey, you get them two days or whatever. So just that was the sort of personality of Teresa. You're not getting them even though I don't really want them. Now, Teresa initially, she pled not guilty, but her son Robert Jr. did a deal with prosecutors to testify against his mother in exchange for a reduced sentence. Now, Teresa then knew she was fucked and changed her plea to guilty as long as she was spared the death penalty. On October the 17th, 1995, Teresa was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences. Now, she will be eligible for parole in 2027. William was sentenced to probation. Did I say probation? Probation. William was sentenced to probation and ordered to undergo therapy for his part and his sister Susan's murder. And Robert Jr. had all his charges dropped in a deal to testify against his mother, except for one count of being an accessory after the fact in relation to Sheila's murder. Now, he pleaded guilty and was sentenced to three years in prison, which was served concurrently with his 16-year sentence for the 1991 murder of that Las Vegas bartender. Okay, now, out of all this, sadly, Terry, the youngest, she died on the 8th of December 2011, aged 41, of heart failure. So, Islanders... Oh, what an absolutely frightening case. Now, it's clear that Theresa Knorr was a control freak, jealous and possessive, a product of a dysfunctional family and then the head of her own. She had six kids and as she lost her looks and gained weight, she took out her anxieties on her three daughters, especially Sheila and Susan, as they matured into lovely young ladies. She saw her family as holding her back from being able to go out and party dumping her kids on her husband so she could live the wild, young existence she craved. To torture and murder two of her daughters with the help of her of their siblings is just disgusting. And the siblings, they look, they only did it in fear of their own lives. All the kids were under her total control. And what I find really disturbing in all of this as well is that when Terry finally was able to be brave enough to call the cops... Lawyers and even her therapist to tell her of her horrific upbringing and the murder of her sisters, they all dismissed dismissed her as some sort of crazy woman having delusions. Now, I suppose the story she did tell to them was so unbelievable that they all sort of thought you couldn't make that shit up. But if they had just looked into it a little in 1989, maybe the bartender Robert that Robert killed... Maybe he'd at least still be alive. Now, there's lots of docos on Theresa Knorr. Plenty of podcasts have covered the case. But there is one book which I'm sure some of my references referenced, and that is Whatever Mother Says, A True Story of a Mother, Madness and Murder by Wensley Clarkson. Now, I didn't actually read it, 
but apparently it is good reading for those that do like books. And I think, like I said, some of my references are referencing that. Okay, so Teresa could be out in 2027. So we'll just have to wait and see. And that's the end of this week's case. So, Islanders, let's get on to the Patreon, as we do right at the end of the show. And thanks to all my past, present and new patrons, your financial support does make a difference as True Crime Island is commercial free for all. So no annoying ads for undies, food delivery or shit like that. And all my content is available for all, no matter if you can donate or not. Nothing behind paywalls. Thank you all so much. It really is very appreciated. I'd like to thank this week Penny, Michelle, Gabes and Melissa. Also, Melissa and Ambira, they both up their pledges as well. And Nicole, who joined the island also. If you want to help out the island, you can go to patreon.com forward slash true crime island. Now, if anyone has missed any email I've sent for a Patreon reward, please get in touch so I can sort you out. That is the upper two tiers after three months. Now, if you don't like the monthly thing, you can also donate via PayPal. PayPal link is donate.truecrimeisland.com or paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. Remember, people, in these times, support yourself before you support the island. I know things are tough for everyone at this moment. I have merch, a Threadless and Redbubble now. You can go to either of those and search for True Crime Island, or I've actually got the Threadless link on, on my webpage, and that's truecrimeisland.com. If you have any problems with the merch, please let me know, and also don't forget to email them as they will sort it all out for you. Now, I will be running a promo, as I said before, for a limited uh, a limited edition hot pink logo shirt. So instead of the aqua blue, it's hot pink. This will run for three weeks after this week. And you can order f- within that time frame after which they will be produced and shipped. Now, this is with Bonfire. I will upload a link and image to Facebook and Twitter this week. If you don't have either of those, also Instagram... If you don't have either of those, drop me an email and I will let you know how to get one. The email is cambo at truecrimeisland.com. You can also support the show free by rating and reviewing, also by sharing it with your friends and family, which I really do love. All the links, including social media, are on my website, truecrimeisland.com. Please feel free to check out my YouTube channel and subscribe. Also, on top of the uh, limited edition hot pink t-shirts there will be a giveaway at 1000 subs on my youtube channel so a bit more motivation to go and have a look and thanks to all of those who have subbed please feel free to comment there subscribe and to get notifications hit the little bell if you want to contact me the best way is always always cambo at truegrumisland.com the email because all the other ways are quite difficult for me to go back over and search if I want to find something you said to me previously. Okay, that's about it. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Night. Boom, fucker, London.